Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. It's a good feeling to pick up Wanderlust, The History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit to pick the book up again and to continue reading it. When you're walking with a dog, there are things you have to do that you may not enjoy doing, but have to be done all the same. Otherwise, you are, may deserve to be, a social outcast. And if you cover up such an activity, which is such an essential part of walking a dog... What are you doing? Curating a false reality. Right, let's get back to Rebecca Solnit, who in Chapter 5, Labyrinths and Cadillacs, continues. Labyrinths are not merely Christian devices, though they always represent some kind of journey, sometimes one of imitation, death and rebirth, or salvation, sometimes of courtship. Some seem merely to signify the complexity of any journey, the difficulty of finding or knowing one's way. They were much mentioned by the ancient Greeks. And although the legendary labyrinth of Crete, in which the Minotaur was imprisoned, has never been found and probably never existed, the shape now called the Cretan labyrinth appeared on its coins. Other labyrinths have been found, carved in the rock in Sardinia, cleared in the stony desert surface in South Arizona and California, made of mosaic by the Romans. In Scandinavia, there are almost 500 known labyrinths made of stones laid out upon the earth. Until the 20th century, fishermen would walk them before putting out to sea to ensure good catches or favourable winds. In England, turf mazes, mazes cut into the earth, were used by young people for erotic games, often in which a boy ran towards a girl at the centre and the twists and turns of the maze seemed to symbolise courtship's complexities the much better known hedge mazes of that country are a later more aristocratic invention of the Renaissance garden. Many who've written about mazes and labyrinths distinguish between the two of them. Mazes, including most garden mazes, have many branchings and are made to complex, to perplex those who enter, whereas a labyrinth has only one route, and anyone who stays with it can find the paradise of the centre and retrace the route to the exit. Another metaphorical moral seems built into these two structures, for the maze offers the confusions of free will without a clear destination, the labyrinth an inflexible route to salvation. 
Oh, let me pause there. Thing about this book, and perhaps about, I'm guessing now, all of Ruth Solnit's writings, are that rushing it is a travesty, or a, to do violence almost to the ideas, or to trivialize the ideas. Because even in that short paragraph, which on the one hand provides information about labyrinths, and on the other hand provides a distinction, offers a distinction between labyrinths and mazes. <clears throat> Not just a distinction in fact, but a metaphorical distinction. Which is a bit like a pair of lighthouses through which you navigate life. One free will and confusion and no clear destiny fumbling your way forward unsure about where all your decisions are going to take you to but feeling in some way that you're, act you're making decisions and another the fixed route the route laid down by authority the route preordained towards whatever salvation means for you. Two lighthouses to steer by. You could say that there's a, a trig point between lighthouse one, lighthouse two and you. <laughs> ah, the marvellous thing I think is that the book provides food for thought. And it provides a space within which to walk, to stroll, to stride, to move, and also a space to be. Right, continuing. Oh, there's a duck. Walking here is the first time I've seen a duck take off from the, from the shore of this, this river. Today I'm not striding. I'm moving almost foot after foot, not even walking half a yard. Here's what Solnit continues to say. Like the stations of the cross, the labyrinth and maze offer up stories we can walk into to inhabit bodily the stories we trace with our feet as well as our eyes. There is a resemblance. There is a resemblance not only between these symbolically invested structures, but between every path and every story. Part of what makes roads, trails and paths so unique as built structures is that they cannot be perceived as a whole all at once by a sedentary onlooker. They unfold in time as one travels along them, just as a story does as one listens or reads, and a hairpin turn is like a pilot twist, as is like a plot twist, a steep ascent, a building of suspense to the view at the summit, a fork in the road, an introduction of a new storyline, 
arrival at the end of the story. Just as writing allows one to read the words of someone who is absent, so roads make it possible to trace the root of the absent. Roads are a record of those who have gone before, and to follow them is to follow people who are no longer there. Not saints and gods anymore, but shepherds, hunters, engineers, emigrants, peasants to market are just commoners. Oh, sorry, are dust commuters. Symbolic structures such as labyrinths call attention to the nature of all paths, all journeys. Oh my goodness, it's so reminiscent for me of Walt Whitman. This is what is behind the special relationship between tale and travel. And perhaps the reason why narrative writing is so closely bound up with walking. To write is to carve a new path through the terrain of the imagination or to point out new features on a familiar route. To read is to travel through the terrain with the author as guide, a guide one may not always agree with or trust, but who can at least be counted upon to take one somewhere. I've often wished that my sentence could be written out that my sentences could be written out as a single line running into the distance so that it would be clear that a sentence is likewise a road and reading is travelling. I did the maths once and found the text of one of my books would be four miles long where it rolled out as a single line of words instead of being set in rows on pages, rolled up like a thread on a spool. Perhaps those Chinese scrolls one unrolls as one reads preserve something of this sense. Interjection on the Road by Jack Kerouac was written out on a long roll of single roll of paper. If I remember rightly, it might even have been toilet paper. The song lines of Australia's Aboriginal peoples are the most famous examples conflating landscape and narrative. The song lines are tools of navigation across the deep desert, while the landscape is a mnemonic device for remembering the stories. In other words, the story is a map, the landscape a narrative. So stories are travels and travels are stories. It is because we imagine life itself as a journey that these symbolic walks, and indeed all walks, have such resonance. The workings of the mind and the spirit are hard to imagine, as is the nature of time. So we tend to metamorph metamorphize all these intangibles as physical objects located in space. Thus our relationship to them becomes physical and spatial. We move toward or away from them. And if time has become space, then the unfolding of time that constitutes a life becomes a journey too. However much or little, one travels spatially. Walking and travelling have become central metaphors in thought and speech. So central we hardly notice them. Embedded in English are innumerable movement metaphors. Steering straight, moving towards the goal, going for the distance, 
getting ahead. Things get in our way, set us back, help us find our way, give us a head start, or the go-ahead as we approach milestones. We move up in the world, reach a fork in the road, hit our stride, take steps. A person in trouble is a lost soul, out of step, has lost her sense of direction, is facing an uphill struggle or going downhill through a difficult phase, in circles, even nowhere. And there are far more flowery phrases or sayings and songs, the primrose path, the road to ruin, the high road and the low road, easy street, lonely street, and the boulevard of broken dreams. Walking appears in many more common phrases. Set the pace, make great strides, a great step forward. Keep pace, hit one stride, toe the line, follow in his footsteps. Psychic and political events are imagined as spatial ones. Thus, in his final speech, Martin Luther King said... I've been to the mountaintop to describe a spiritual state echoing the state Jesus attained after his literal mountain ascent. King's first book was called Stride to Freedom, a title echoed more than three decades later by Nelson Mandela's autobiography Long Walk to Freedom, while his former countrywoman, Doris Lessing, called the second volume of her memoirs Walking in the Shade. And then there was Kierkegaard's Steps on Life's Way, or the literary theorist Umberto Eco's Six Walks in the Fictional Woods, in which he describes reading a book as wandering in a forest. <clears throat> Bang! If life itself, the passage of time allotted to us, is described as a journey, it's most often imagined as a journey on foot, a pilgrim's progress across the landscape of personal history. And often when we imagine ourselves, we imagine ourselves walking. When she walked the earth is one way to describe someone's existence. Her profession is her walk of life. An expert is a walking encyclopedia, and he walked with God is the Old Testament's way of describing a state of grace. The image of the walker, alone and active and passing through, rather than settled in the world, is a powerful vision of what it means to be human. Whether it is a hominid traversing grasslands, or a Samuel Beckett character shuffling down a rural road. The metaphor of walking becomes literal again when we really walk. If life is a journey, then when we, act, when we are actually journeying, our lives have become tangible, with goals we can move towards, progress we can see, achievement we can understand, metaphors and united with actions. Labyrinths, pilgrimages, mountain climbs, hikes with clear and desirable destinations 
all allow us to take our allotted time as a literal journey with spiritual dimensions we can understand through the, through the senses. If journeying and walking are central metaphors, then all journeys, all walks, let us enter the same symbolic space as mazes and rituals do, if not so compellingly. There are many other arenas in which walking and reading are conflated, just as the church labyrinth had its secular sibling in the garden maze, so the reading of the Stations of the Cross has its secular equivalent in the sculpture garden. Pre-modern Europeans were expected to recognise a large cast of characters in painting, sculpture and stained glass from the saints St. Peter with his key St. Lucy with her eye on a plate to the graces, cardinal virtues and deadly sins most churches would have some portion of the Bible translated into art a particularly elaborate cathedral like Chartres would include such features as the seven liberal arts and the wise and foolish virgins, as well as scenes from the life of Christ arranged symbolically. I'm just resisting the temptation as I reach a litter basket of... Of putting down the white man's burden. <laughs> Though book literacy was far lower, image literacy was incomparably higher, and the more educated would be able to recognize the gods and mortals from classical mythology as well as Christian iconography. Because the sources were usually literary, each figure represented a story. And these stories could be arranged in various sequences, and often were. Sequences that could be read by strolling past. Embodiments such as liberty or spring were not narrative, but they might be arranged in a sequence that was, while gods and heroes often appeared in some climactic moment from a familiar tale, making the sculpture equivalent to a film set. Many gardens were sculpture gardens, not in our modern sense of greenery as a sort of picture frame for various individual objects, but as whole spaces that could be read, making the garden as much an intellectual space as the library. Sculptures and sometimes architectural elements were arranged in sequences that the viewer-stroller interpreted as she passed. And part of the charm of these gardens is that walking and reading, body and mind, were harmoniously united there. The cloisters were part of every monastery and convent, sometimes bore elaborate Christian stories, usually a square arcade round a garden with a central well, pool or fountain. The cloister was where monks or nuns could walk without leaving the contemplative space of the order. Renaissance gardens had elaborately arranged mythological and historical statues. Because the walker already knew the story, no words need to be said.
But in the space and time of the walk and its encounter with the statuary, the story was in a sense retold just by being called to mind. This makes the garden a poetic, literary, mythological and magical space. The great gardens of the Villa d'Este and Trivoli had a series of bas-reliefs that told the tales of Ovid's metamorphoses. Amor, I unfortunately never got there. A more completely lost narrative was the labyrinth in Versailles, destroyed in 1775. In it were placed, along with a statue of Aesop, figures grouping from his fables, and, quote, each of the speaking characters represented in the fable groups, writes W.H. Matthews, emitted a jet of water representing speech, and each group was accompanied by an engraved plate displaying more or less appropriate verses by the poet de Bonserade. The labyrinth was thus a three-dimensional analogy in which walking, reading and being and looking united into a journey into the fables, morals and meanings. I better read that again. The labyrinth was thus a three-dimensional anthology in which walking, reading and looking united into a journey into the fables, morals and meanings. Versailles, the largest of all Europe's formal gardens, had the most complex sculptural programme in which the Aesop maze was only a minor diversion. It organised nearly all its sculptures around the central image of Louis XIV as the Sun King. Subsequent additions and subtractions make it hard to decipher now. Seventy sculptors laboured that the sculpture seventy sculptors laboured that the sculptures, fountains and very plants would speak to strollers of the power of the king. A power naturalised and endorsed by the imagery of the sun and the classical sun god Apollo, on a scale that made the symbolic not a scale model, but a vast expanse of the world. A century later, the celebrated formal garden at Stowe in Buckinghamshire, England, was transformed into a more naturalistic landscape. But its rolling hills and groves were studded with even more pointedly political architectural motifs. The Temple of Ancient Virtue was located near both the ruined Temple of Modern Virtue and across a pool, the Temple of British Worthies, featuring the poets and statesmen most appealing to the garden's Whig owner. The conjunction deplored the state of the 18th century world while setting up the Whigs as heirs to the, the noble ancients. Other elements at Stowe were more humorous for those who could read space and symbolism. The Hermitage, located near the Temple of Venus, for example, pitting asceticism against sensuality. If a narrative is a sequence of related events, then these sculpture gardens made the world into a book by situating these events in real space far enough apart to be read by walking.
and made Versailles and Stowe into books of political propaganda. Sometimes what is to be read in the garden is less literal. A garden path, wrote the landscape architects Charles W. Moore, William J. Mitchell and William Turnbull, can become the thread of a plot, connecting moments and incidents into a narrative. The narrative structure might be a simple chain of events with a beginning, middle and end. It might be embellished with diversions, digressions and picturesque twists, be, be accompanied by parallel ways, subplots, or deceptively fork into blind alleys like the alternative scenarios explored in a detective novel. Los Angeles' contribution to this genre is the walk of the stars on Hollywood Boulevard, in which tourists read celebrity names as they tread them underfoot. I'm back in front of the water, where fish jump occasionally, infrequently. Suddenly, my dog walks along the edge of the water, never going in, sniffs the rocks, he walks purposefully. seeking the story of smells, sniffing nettles. Oh, he's put two toes in. And drinks, refreshes himself. the onward journey. Sometimes walkers overlay their surroundings with their imaginings and tread truly invented terrain. The American minister and walking enthusiast John Finlay wrote a friend, you may be interested to know that I have a little game that I play alone, namely that of walking in some part of the world as many miles as I actually walk here, day by day, with the result that I have walked nearly 20,000 miles here in the last six years, which means that I have covered the land part of the earth in a circuit of the globe. I finished last night 2,000 miles since the 1st of January, 1934, and in doing so reached Vancouver from the north, the Nazi architect, Albert Speer, traversed the world in his imagination while pacing back and forth in his prison yard like Kierkegaard and his father. The art critic, Lucy Lippard, found that after her return to Manhattan, she could continue to take daily walks that had been so important a part of her years' residence in rural England, quote, in a kind of out-of-body form, 
step by step, weather, texture, views, seasons, wildlife, encounters. There is a very practical sense in which to trace even an imaginary route is to trace the spirit or thought of what passed there before. At its most casual, this retracing allows unsought memories of events to return as one encounters the sights of those events. At its most formal, it is a means of memorizing. This is the technique of the memory palace, another inheritance from classical Greek, widely used until the Renaissance. That's funny. Widely used until the Renaissance. Usually, usually we get phrases like not widely used until the Renaissance. Interesting. It was a means of committing quantities of information to memory. An important skill before painted paper and printing made the written word replace the memory for much storage of rote information. Francis Yates, whose magnificent art of memory recovered the history of this strange technique for our time, describes the working of the system in detail. It is not difficult to get hold of the general principles of the mnemonic, she writes. The first step was to imprint on the memory a series of loci or places. The commonest, though not the only type, of mnemonic place system used was the architectural type. The clearest description of the process is that given by Quintilio, Quintilian. In order to form a series of places in memory, he says, a building is to be remembered as spacious and various a one as possible. The forecourt, the living room, bedrooms and parlours, not omitting statues and other ornaments with which the rooms are decorated. The images by which the speech is to be remembered are then placed in an imagination in the places which have been memorized in the building. This done as soon as the memory of the facts required to be revived, all these places are visited in turn and the various deposits demanded of their custodians. We have to think of the ancient orator as moving an imagination through his memory building while he is making his speech, drawing from the memorized places, the images that he has placed on them. The method ensures that the points are remembered in the right order, since the order is fixed by the sequence of places in the building. Memory, end quote, memory like the mind and time is unimaginable without physical dimensions. To imagine it as a physical space is to make it into a landscape in which its contents are located and what has location can be approached. That is to say, if memory is imagined as a real space, a place, theatre, library, then the act of remembering is imagined as a real act, that is, as a physical act, as walking. The scholarly emphasis is always on the device of the imaginary palace, in which the information was placed room by room, object by object, but the means of retrieving the stored information was walking through the rooms like a visitor in a museum, restoring the objects to consciousness.
to walk the same route again can mean to think the same thoughts again, as though thoughts and ideas were indeed fixed objects in a landscape one need only know how to travel through. In this way, walking is reading, even when both the walking and reading are imaginary. Here, Louis. 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 Come here. Yeah, come here. Two men, one carrying a baby. <clears throat> come here, come here. Hey, and a little girl. I didn't see her. Easy boy. There you are. Now, there you are. Hi, guys. Hey, But if the book has eclipsed the memory palace as a repository of information, it has retained some of its pattern. In other words, if there are walks that resemble books, there are also books that resemble walks and use the reading activity of walking to describe a world. The great example is Dante's Divine Comedy in which the three realms of the soul after death are explored by Dante, guided by Virgil. It is an unearthly travelogue of sorts, moving past sights and characters steadily, always keeping the pace of a tour. The book is so specific about its geography that many editions contain maps, and Yeats suggests that in fact this masterpiece was a memory palace of sorts, like a vast number of stories before and after. It is a travel story, one in which the movement of the narrative is echoed by the movement of the characters across an imaginary landscape. End of chapter five. Oh, just dwelling on the divine comedy, that wonderful, story of entering the dark wood into an unknown space at a certain point in life and clearly the mood is low and times are hard and coming out at the other end of the journey into the light of the sun fantastic piece of storytelling being led every step of the way stories at every level it's just one huge collection of stories all bound together 
on this journey downwards, downwards, downwards into the heart of hell. So, Rebecca Solnit, thank you again. Thank you again for Wanderlust, A History of Walking. Thank you so much for the whole of part one. Page 78, we've reached in my book. Quarter of the way through. At the bottom of the page, there are little quotations. I've not paid any attention to them so far. But I'll just read you one. I stride along with calm, with eyes, with shoes, with fury, with forgetfulness. Pablo Neruda. I stride along with calm, with eyes, with shoes, with fury, with forgetfulness. Pablo Neruda. Part two of the book is entitled From the Garden to the Wild. From the Garden to the Wild. Well, the wild is always attractive and the adventure of wanderlust will continue in due course. This has been Rebecca Solnit. Read on the podcast from Cork with Love, which is a sort of walk through a number of adventures. From Cork with Love Adventures. Read by Paul O'Manny. Thank you very much for listening. Walk well. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul O'Mani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.